Welcome to Men Are Nuts, a podcast about mental health, emotional health, psychological health, physical health, awareness in men, women and society. First, it started with MAN, the acronym for Men Are Nuts. And we have a very special guest on the show for you today. She's all the way in the UK. And we're speaking earlier and she was telling me the weather's not bad there, but it's, I've told her, telling her how the temperature is here, 37. And she said, oh my gosh. So introduce yourself. <laughs> well, after that introduction, I have to say that my name is Annie Casina and I don't do well with extreme heat. But apart from that, I am a narcissistic abuse recovery coach. I work with men and women to help them find themselves after narcissistic abuse, which is still relatively unknown, I think. And beyond that, I'm passionate about the work that I do and helping people to find a life after they have been emotionally broken because it happened to me too. Yeah, and it is such a waste of a life. Yeah, fantastic. And um, you're in um, sunny UK? Or is it sunny? What's, um, what's happened today? What's the it's difference? a light shade of grey. It's a light shade of grey. But you're, but you're still smiling. I mean, I think a lot of people... Uh, England's often um, spoken of as being grey. Um, and mm. Yeah, it is. Um, so whereabouts are you in, in England? I'm in a village just outside Oxford. Ah, so you're in Oxford. Yeah, I know we spoke yes. about it earlier. And um, for, the, for the listeners out there, can you kind of tell them where is Oxford in, in relation to the to England and the UK? Well, Oxford is about 70 miles from central London. And it's a small place, obviously, with a big university. And it's definitely a city which punches above its weight. The fact that it's even a city with 300,000 people is already something. Um, And it is a very quaint little corner of the UK it's kind of a place that time forgot yeah. it's very different it's not at all like London yeah. and, or uh, any other city yeah um, I've been there for a long time and I remember going down there I went there in Cambridge and mm. I remember going there and there was there's, there's bikes lots of bikes I see lots of bikes over there and like you say it's, yeah. it's very quaint and like you said, what you said, that time, that time forgot. It's, it's. There's a lot of listed buildings there, and it's. It, you could. You, it was. Was there any of the? Um, I wonder if any of the Harry Potter's was set there or anything like that. Um, um, I think the hall. I think the schools. The hall in that place was in one set in one of the Oxford colleges, as I recall. Yeah, yeah. And what's it? What's it like? Have you always lived there? And what's it like to live there? I mean, is it? Is, you know, is it is it um, is it a bustling place? Is it a place to the people to come and visit? What's it like? <laughs> it's not a bustling place at all. I haven't always lived there. I moved there seven years ago, yeah. and it was culture shock. I'm a Londoner. I lived in urban Essex. I'd moved to Hertfordshire, and I could find my way around. It was kind of all concepts of how cities work. Yeah. And then you move to Oxford, and it's not like that. It really isn't. Most Oxford people don't go into Oxford because there are too many tourists. So right. um, 
people literally live in villages. And I was quite excited when we moved to our village because our corner shop, we only had the one, was a Maserati garage. You know. <laughs> it just happened to be the only shop we had for a good half a mile. And it was a Maserati garage. Yeah, and where you live, is it, you say it's a village, is it quite... I remember, I know Oxford's quite green, isn't it? I know Cambridge is quite, there's a lot mm. of green around mm. around it. Um, so it's, it's, you'd say it's quite green then, Oxford. Are you able to get out and about and walks and go for bike rides and things like that? Very. Um, I mean, I can walk a few hundred metres, if that. And I can go into a little wood where we've got a few cows for the summer. Yeah. Or I can go across the road past where our corner shop was yeah. and down into a field which is currently full of sheep it is true village wow wow how, how, how are you finding i mean you say it was a corner shop but how seven years on how are you finding it and how are you finding the people oxford um it's still very different um you there's just a whole different way of being in oxford it's a very different place. Um, there's a sort of code of dress in Oxford, which is unchic. Um, you know, you kind of expect most places that people sort of are stylish yeah. or try to be stylish. Not Oxford. They go down for the very pared down, understated look. Like, it's just surprising. And all terms of reference are kind of different because it is this collection of villages. Um, so it's a whole different way of doing everything in Oxford. And it is for a Londoner, it is incredibly small. Um, everybody knows the whole place, you know, sort of, you can't find a little gem of a restaurant that people don't know about. Yeah. Everybody seems to know Oxford inside out. Yeah. And um, have you found it, have you found that over the seven years there's been much change or do you find that this is it's kind of like, like you said, it's, it's kind of back in time, but has there been much changes over the, the seven years you've been there? Um, it's getting more built up all the time, obviously. We're yeah. sort of finding more and more housing developments are just going up. Yeah. yeah. And... That, I live in one such. Do you think that's a? Do you think that's a? In terms of the, in ter, I mean, I know there's a lot of land there, but do you think? Do you think that they might be going? Do you think that that might be going the wrong path in the sense of, will, will all the land be taken up, or is it is, is the is the listed land or is the listed buildings and they won't go down? Mm. What, what? Well, again, Oxford is not anywhere else, yeah. so. I think that a lot of places are losing their precious listed land. Oxford has um, educated a lot of MPs and prime ministers yeah. and seems to have a little bit more of a privileged stand that it just seems more protected than other places and more, pri more privileged. We have fantastic transport in and out of London and we're going to have a special route to Cambridge. Um, and that doesn't relate to numbers. That relates to both the excellence of the city in terms of the university and, you know, just good luck. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, you don't have buses that run every half hour from everywhere else at 70 miles out of London, yeah. into central London. Yeah, so, so Oxford's quite scenic. I'd like to, when I come back there, I'd like to come back down for a visit just to just to see, mm. because it, I remember it being a very nice place and I just remember my one take it from is. it was just seeing absolutely loads of bikes everywhere. You, you know, the, you know, everyone's riding everywhere, and even close, mm. to, close to the um, the colleges and the the university, everyone's on bikes, and you hardly see any cars. Yeah, uh, and it can be actually quite terrifying when you're driving because driving because they are just everywhere. Yeah, yeah. So um, it's funny because that's the re- that 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 actually seems like the reverse because mm. for some people who are riding bike, it could be terrifying in a certain place where there's so much built-up cars. So it's, it's funny that, that, you, that analogy of, the, of reverse. So how have things been in terms of um, rest- the restrictions at the moment and, and you know what's been happening there in England? Well, things are easing up in the UK now. Yeah. We're just starting to open up and we've done a good job of vaccinating. So... We're hoping that we're on top of this. Um, my own particular circumstances don't quite match yeah. my the countries because my partner has health issues and therefore we've been in a kind of permanent lockdown for uh, 14 months. Wow. wow. So you you so how have you found that then? Have you found that? Um... How's that, how's that kind of affected you, you, you and your partner and just yourself as uh, mentally? Um, mentally, I think about the first 12 months were easy enough. Fortunately, yeah. my partner and I do get on really well, yeah. which is a blessing. And we enjoy each other's company and we have greenery outside. So getting outside is very viable. Um, the last two months with the vaccines and everything happening, I've started to go a little bit stir crazy. Yeah. I think everybody does at some point. We're all tired. Yeah. And I think we're all realizing how incredibly lucky we were with the life that we had, that we could just go anywhere, we could go into crowds and it wouldn't, you know, be a source of potential harm. We were just free, you know. Yeah. We're free to hug, free to associate, and now things have changed. Yeah, and you say you you were going stir crazy. How have you how have you coped with that? What things have you done to help you cope with that that going stir crazy, or with not? Uh, well, I'm very blessed because in my work I get to talk to a range of people over Zoom. Yeah. A vast array of people so that's really great my work has done a lot to keep me sane yeah. um, getting out in nature has done a lot I've done typical lockdown activities I now make, make sourdough bread yeah. and sourdough bread that's a that's a popular yes. one at the moment it's been a popular one for totally yeah <laughs> yes and then I've started to learn Russian as you do <laughs> that's another <laughs> lockdown activity um, and it's and then obviously one has to look after one's mental health I love the way that I've suddenly swept that into the third person but one of the things that works for me is journaling daily yeah. and I have 
my normal practices, which I would do anyway. And because I work with people around their mental health, I am quite alert to what's going on with me. So it's a lot of it is going in and sort of um, either acknowledging, yeah, you feel stir crazy, and who wouldn't? Fourteen months in lockdown, yeah. or just actually switching focus. Yeah, I like the fact that you said you you go into nature, and then mm-hmm. the, the the one I've not I've not you're the first person to to say this. I've not heard this before. You, you decided to learn um, Russian. What, where did that come Russian. from? Well, it's very interesting, I have to say. I am a linguist by training. Right. I'm quite good at languages, European languages. Yeah. The, I just just fascinated. I was in Russia very, very briefly, and I was fascinated by the alphabet and the foreignness of it. And it's a very challenging language to learn for me because it doesn't work the way other languages work and yeah. um, other languages that I know um, but it's also such an insight into why Russians are so incredibly different different and if you can organize all the moving parts of Russian to get a sentence out correctly it's probably no surprise that you end up as a chess master yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it is that complicated to me. It's foreign. Um, like they don't have the definite and the indefinite article. There's no the, there's no a. Uh. They don't use the verb to be in the present tense. Um, they simplify, simplify verbs a lot. So you've only got past, present and future, yeah. but not all the nice different gradations that we have plus every damn noun noun has six different cases and six different endings so if you say this is the toilet you'd say this is toilet but if you say i am in the toilet you have to add a different ending to the word toilet because it's now in a different case the prepositional case so it goes on every damn thing I was going to ask you just before we start to talk about your journey and and you know your life and and you know how it's come around to that to the point where you you do what you do now. What would you say is the um, in your eyes? What would you on your your person? What would you say is the is the is the hardest language to learn? Um, well, according to some research. Russian is sort of hard, but you go for something like Chinese mm. and you're totally out in another world because that's ideograms. So you have yeah. to learn each one separately, I think. Yeah, yeah. I just wonder because, I mean, they've always said for years, everyone always says for years you say, oh, the English is language, but it's not. Because you obviously no, you've got it's really like, not. You've got Mandarin and, and, and things like that, which are uh, a yeah. lot. Because then also in, in, China, in China, they have so many different dialects so it, yeah. the, the word the sentence can Absolutely. change from one one um, place to another um, so let's talk about your journey um, what's made you you what's made you want to become the person that you are and what's made you want to help people 
So let's talk about uh, you and okay. growing up and, and t- take it away from there. Right. Um, I think I would rather start from the question, uh, the previous question is what made, what's made you, you, um, and my journey. And the thing was that I ended up with my back against the wall emotionally and I had to grow up. I had to look into myself. I grew up in a very strange world with a lot of denial going on. Um, I grew up in a family uh, where religion was quite important and it was a very, very unhappy family. The story publicly was that we were a very happy family. We were in many ways a materially privileged family. We really looked good on paper, but the reality was rather different. Um, With the benefit of the hindsight that I have now, my father was uh, a narcissist. My mother was quite narcissistic too. And they, well, the, the jargon is they triangulated the children, but what they actually did was they played us off against each other. So we didn't grow up like normal families where siblings love and support and are there for each other. We grew up in a family where there was a lot of attack going on. Yeah. And the children asserted themselves at the expense of each other. I was the youngest and the girl, and I really tried to be good enough to be loved. That was my um, experience growing up, and um, it didn't work too well. Trying to be good enough to earn love just doesn't work. Yeah. But then, where did you grow up, by the way? We're, we're, in we're, London. In London. Yes, yeah, so that's where you first mm. started. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this whole system jogged along reasonably until I met my husband. The, the primary focus on the fam, of the family was on my two brothers. One of them had, I kid you not, eloped at the age of 17 to Gretna Green. <laughs> Gretna Green, yeah. Actually, it might have been 18, but he and his sweetheart eloped to Gretna Green at the age of 18 and then came back, both went to live in their own homes and got married in a great big white wedding some six months later. You couldn't make this up. But um, it was my brother's way of putting pressure on his narcissistic parents, our narcissistic parents, who didn't like his girlfriend. But he married her anyway, and they have actually stayed married for decades. Middle brother was the tearaway, and that was his role, and he, he did it really quite well. So I was kind of the girl who was expected to make a good marriage to make up for golden brother's less appealing marriage. And I wasn't a problem until I met a man that I wanted to marry. Yeah. And then all hell broke loose, and they actually disowned me. Let's, let's take Which it back. Is... Can we just take it back a minute? Because for those listeners out there, when we say 
because it's not that's often not a word used in the modern era. Eloped. What? Eloped. Yes. So, so, <laughs> but listen that day, what 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 do you what does elope mean or what did you mean in that in that context for those listeners? Okay. So my brother and his wife were minors at that time yeah. and they could therefore marry without parental consent. Yeah. However, they were smart enough to realise that three years they would have taken till they're 21 three years of intensive pressure to break them up would have been acutely unpleasant if not worse so they decided to go to Gretna Green which was this allegedly very romantic place where minors could marry so that's what they did they went from London um, they found a reason why they're meant to be somewhere and got in my brother's car and drove all the way to Gretna Green Uh, married there as they could as minors, came home and confronted my parents with a fait accompli. This is what we've done. And they also ensured that it was public enough that it was a fact. So my father being a somewhat grandiose narcissist, didn't accept the fact publicly. Publicly he denied it had happened and then went on to make a big engagement and a big white wedding for two people who were already legally married because narcissists grab the narrative and make it what they feel it should be. Mm. And in so doing, they can undermine anybody else's sense of reality. You know, oh, we hear your son got married. No, didn't happen. But it did. So basically, you had the two. You were the young. You say you were the youngest. Yeah. And then you had the two older brothers that, as as boys do, um, like you say, they, they, they make decisions to kind of run away and mm. do do the things and escape. Yeah. So it kind of left you. Mm. Left you there on your own. Yeah, I was the last child at home. Uh, I just about got away to university, and I. I'm the empath, I'm the sort of giving, uh, touchy-feely one in the family. My brothers were not. And then, sort of, this worked until I met the man who became my husband. And then, this incredible battle ensued between my father and my husband-to-be. My husband came from Australia. And my parents said, you can't marry him because we don't know anything about him. Mm. Well, they, they didn't know anything about him, but there were some really simple solutions like they could have asked. That would have been one. Yeah. And they could have gone to the trouble of finding out. But instead, my parents being my parents said, no, um, for all we know, he could be an axe murderer. Seriously, you know, Um, you know, they didn't even trust their daughter to possibly spot an axe murderer. So they, they disowned me. They said, you know, you have to choose between him and us. And if you choose him, we will disown you. This is, again, a typical kind of narcissistic uh, 
strategy. They raise the bar incredibly high. You've got to choose. And then having created a poor codependent offspring or partner or whatever it is, they rely on your dependence on them kicking in and you saying, it's got to be you. But um, I stood there and I thought, if I go back to them, it will destroy me because, you know, they'd be very, very damaging. And I love this guy, so it was a no-brainer. It really was a no-brainer. I had no brain at the time. <laughs> um, and I married him. <laughs> yeah. Did, did your, I, did, I was going to say to you, did your parents give your, any of your brothers any ultima, an ultimatum in regards to their girlfriends, or was it only you that gave that ultimatum to? Well, the fact that my brother eloped suggests that things were pretty rocky there. Mm. Um, And then my middle brother, he had a bit of latitude because he had to bring home a girl that they would appreciate, who would bring status into the family. And I, as the daughter, I was expected to make a brilliant marriage, a marriage of their choice. I mean, we're talking about late 20th century this is this is about 100 years out of date all of this stuff but it really happened Um, and when I brought home the axe murderer they were really frustrated because they thought that this plan that they had for my brilliant marriage and their increased social status had been destroyed Mm. I mean when I talk about this, it's, and which I don't generally, it sounds absolutely crazy. Yeah. Yeah. There is a reason for that. Yeah. I was going to say to you, I was, I, the reason why I asked you about, did they say that to, you, to your brother? I wonder, I, wonder if, if it, I wonder if the reason why they might have said that to you, because you were at home, because you were giving an empath, they could maybe... Mm. Um, they, they probably knew that they could probably, in a sense, keep you, or they've kept you for so long, and they could keep you there. And knowing that you're the daughter, you're an empath, they could probably um, get their way with you, being as though they didn't get their way with the two, yeah, the two older ones. Um, yeah, there was. Um, they knew how to play me. Yeah. They. They did what all narcissists do in the end. They underestimated my strength and my motivation, which was born of absolute desperation. And that's been the story of my life quite often, that I've moved when I felt that I would be destroyed if I didn't. But my middle brother, the tearaway, he's not particularly academically intelligent, but he did know how to play my parents. So there's a point at which he wanted to move out of house and home. And they said, no, you can't. And they held the purse strings. So he staged this marvelous scene one Thursday night when my parents always went out for dinner. He came and kissed me, which he never did. And he said, I am leaving forever. Whoa, what's going on here? He said, I found the woman that I love and I'm leaving. I'm just giving up everything to be with this woman that I love and I've left a note for my parents. And he left. 
he even said he'd bring back his car, which was a really nice car the following day, but, uh, or maybe he was picked up by his friend, I don't know, but it was, it was weird because he didn't park from his cars very easily. Yeah. And I was appalled by this, so Annie, the little peacemaker, gets in her own car and goes to talk to him because he's told me where he is. And he sort of does this whole tragic scene and I go, and he doesn't move and it's all complicated. Then I go home, my parents come back from dinner, open the note from him. He's told them exactly where he is and that he's gone forever. And they arranged for him to come round on the Saturday night with his girlfriend for a summit, which he does. Because he knew that I've gone forever was a bargaining chip. It wasn't for real. They played those games together. I didn't. So he comes around on the Saturday night with a girlfriend, the love of his life. And somehow, um, between... Saturday and Monday, my parents negotiate that if he comes home, he gets the car back and he can go off and live in a flat on his own. He just has to ditch the girlfriend. And the girlfriend went west. But this is people who knew how to play each other. I mean, it's it's an appalling story, but they knew that nothing they said necessarily meant anything I didn't because I thought you played life for real I thought you stated what you mean to do and that you lived honestly so I was a total misfit in that family does this make a crazy kind of sense no it makes it makes sense I was going to ask you because in in, when you talk about um, social status what was what was your how can I put it um what was the social status of your mum and dad or, you know, the surroundings? Well, this is kind of crazy. We, as I said, we're part of a faith community and my father was a wealthy man and therefore he had a bit of status and money gave him a lot of power in yeah. the family. But this status that was so important to him was in one small faith community. <clears throat> Pardon me. He was acting like he was the sort of king of England, in a way, you know, sort of public image and all of this. But this is very much what narcissists do. Yeah, yeah. Because the, the reason why I'm, I'm saying this as well, um, I'm wondering as well, you know, you hear, you, you read the, th- the books about, you know, Jane Austen and the and mm. and um, a lot of those period, period yeah. dramas. And you, yes. we, you start to realise that it's it's the social status where you marry into wealth, and if the, your parents or whoever it is, yes. parents don't want you to marry, if you bring somebody that's not from that community or social mm. standing or whatever wealth standing, you cannot marry. Was it was it similar to that then? Um, did he want to? Marry, I, I, did, did they want you to marry into the? family so they they can see or they it's almost becomes that they would have to choose your partner but because you have they tried yeah yeah yeah. yes Uh, they tried but it it was really about power and control yeah which it is um yes i think more so than in than in jane austen's day because it was 
a long time before. But this was about them shoring up their own public image, as simple as that. Um, and, you know, being the heads of a dynasty. Yeah. yeah. But for me, the important thing was that I was a pawn in their game. My feelings didn't matter. My well-being wasn't considered. It was, well, if she does what she what we want her to do, she will be happy. How did they know? Did they care? Um, so it was a shocker. Yeah. At what point growing up, I mean, because um, narcissist, not the word narcissist, obviously this, it's been taken on a, since this, um, since we've had, I think it's been the last four years since, I think since, the word has kind of come, become famous since Trump's come in and, all, and everyone's saying he's a narcissist and then government officials yeah. and then it's, it's gone. Yeah. It's taken, it's taken on um, a really um, a familiar, familiarity now um, with people who are yeah. in high positions. And so for, for you growing up, maybe the word narcissism doesn't exist or you maybe, maybe it did, I don't know. But when growing up, what would what would be the words we you know what words would you be using as a child or what would you be thinking about your parents knowing that they do you understand what i mean because the word narcissism would have come yeah. later in your vocabulary so you wonder much later yeah so wonder what what were you thinking you know were, were you th- looking at them thinking well as a child you know why are you being like this why are you being nasty you know what was what was your take on it well, it's very hard for any child growing up, I think, because you see the world through the home. Yeah. And my parents did spend a lot of time saying that they were very normal people. We are a normal, happy family. In reality, they were neither normal nor happy. And it's a very strange concept of family as well. My father used to say, I never tell a lie. And, you know, anyone who says that you have to worry about because people lie. And there are normal daily lies like, how does this look on me? Oh, it looks lovely. You know, people lie gently. So my father never told a lie. And I thought he must be superhuman because he never told a lie. I was gullible. But um, I had conflicting things. I kind of knew on one level that we were a weird family. And I knew on one level that my father had a very, very ugly temper. But on the other hand, I bought into the hype. I bought into the family line, as you do. And what kids do is when they grow up in a family where things are wrong and they're told that what's wrong is their fault or somebody else's fault, you kind of believe it. Because even when you see that your parents are decidedly not quite the ticket you want to believe that they're okay and you want to believe that they love you because your survival depends on them yeah uh so you kind of see and you don't see what's going on yeah so at what point then did you was it growing up did you realize was there a point where it came to was it one moment where you kind of looked and maybe you looked and you thought, well, this isn't right. You know, the, you know you've probably gone through as a child and thinking that this is normal, but then there must mm. have been a point in your, in your childhood where you thought, 
and you must have looked at them in a strange way and thinking, this isn't this isn't how a family should be. Was you comparing it against others, or was it the fact that because to, for three of you to do what you the three children to do what you did, you've all must have had you've all must have had a similar thought process um, and be treated as I don't, the same way. Is what I mean. We were treated differently. Um, my oldest brother was the golden boy. Truly, he could do very little wrong apart from his wife. Um, my middle brother was a scapegoat. He was the one who was publicly the target of my parents' wrath. And I was very good at invisibility. And as you can see from my colour scheme, I can still rock invisibility <laughs> to this day. Um, but but you you don't get a lot of clarity in a home like that because you're always lurching from drama to drama and crisis to crisis. My father had a volcanic temper and every Friday night was a scene. Nobody got hit, but there's a lot of emotional uh, smashing that went on. And I was off totally off kilter the whole time with it. My brother's my brothers handled it very differently, and to this day, um, they would have quite a different narrative. Yeah. You you end up reacting in crazy ways. My older oldest brother really does not like my parents. He really does not. But he was a brilliant son to them. He worked in a business with them. He went on a holiday with them. You know, that's a big chunk of your life to spend with someone that you really don't like. Mm. But he did. Um, you see and you don't see. Yeah. Yeah. And um, it, I'm yeah. Sorry, the reason why I was saying, the reason why I was saying that you, you all kind of did the similar thing, well, I say similar thing, you all one eloped, you, you kind of escaped. And yeah. for you to have all done that, or have been having that thought to do that, You've all must have gone through. You've all must have seen what your parents were like, and that's what I'm trying to get at. I'm, I'm trying to get at that. If, if yeah. all of you, if all of you seen what this, this, you know, it's not like there's one person in the family that kind of looking, thinking, well, maybe they're not like that, and maybe they're okay, or they were loving to one, and then they still think they're okay. It, it, it seemed to happen to all three of you, and so for that to happen, it must have been. There must be something that's gone wrong. You know, you know, like you say, with your parents' Plenty. side, the, the relationship and things like that. Plenty. Um, I didn't tell you the end of my brother's story. Yeah. So, my brother ran away. Il- big brother ran away, eloped, got married, and went back into the family fold, and lived his most of his married life in a house, a hundred yards, hundred meters from his parents, and worked in the family business. So that rebellion was really short-lived. It was, I got something I wanted. Middle brother took a long, long time to get married, but brought home this spouse that my parents could take great pride in, that gave them great status. And he worked in the family business and he, he lived 150 meters from my parents and going into his home which I only did very rarely was um, was really quite 
disturbing because his home was a replica of my parents. He had three children and you could literally sit in his dining room and it was a replica of his parents and it was, you know, what has happened here? And I was the one who left and kept moving away to have my own life. I was the one who left. Do you think it was? It, do you think that was because the boys um, were took a, took some of the traits from your dad, or because you've spoken about more about your dad? And do you think also? Do you oh. think that your was your mum was your mum that way, or was she conditioned by your dad to be that way? A narcissist. It's really hard with my mother. Um, she was quite narcissistic. She was quite punitive. She's quite insensitive. Um, but her own upbringing was also pretty traumatic. She was brought up in a different city and her own mother had psychotic interludes from the time as far as I know, that my mother was in her teens. So my grandmother would see things that weren't there. She would become very distressed. Apparently, she physically tried to push my mother under a bus once. I've been told that. I don't know whether it's true or not. But she would end up in mental hospitals and she had... Sorry, I don't remember the right word. Is it ECT where they, um, you know, fry your brain a bit? Yeah, yeah. She had a fair bit of that, um, and I suspect that the relationship, from what, from the way my mother talked about her father, I think that relationship overstepped the boundaries of a father-child relationship from time to time. Either way, she was a very damaged individual. So it was, and she lived in deep denial. Her mother lived with her. She said her mother was wonderful. Her mother lived with us. She said her mother was wonderful. Uh, and they managed to go off on a world tour for a couple of months and leave me at home with grandmother when grandmother was going psychotic again. Yeah. That was quite traumatic. Yeah. Um, but it was a strange upbringing. When I listened to myself, it was very strange. How would you describe... Uh, what effects did it have on you as a child? Would, you know, did it cause anxiety? Did it cause you to go on yourself? <laughs> did it cause you not to have friends? You know, what was, what was your, your mental health like growing up then? Um, Were you scared, frightened? Yeah, I was a very frightened mouse. I was terrified of my father and mother. I expected to be isolated. I didn't I didn't feel I had any value in my teens and when I was left with my psychotic grandmother. There were other people around, but it was pretty hideous. I developed anorexia. I've always been a small person, but I lost a fair bit of weight. Yeah. Nobody noticed. I mean, it was early days for anorexia, but I lost a good 12.5% of my body weight. Wow. Nobody noticed. 
I eventually started eating again. I don't know quite why I was lucky. I think natural greed kicked in. I don't know. Um, and I haven't been troubled with anorexia since, but I suffered a lot with suicidal thoughts. Mm. I was quietly, deeply depressed. Yeah. And mm. so, so basically, your childhood was one of not being felt loved. N- yeah. No hugs. And then you have this person who's volatile, who you're supposed to be looking up to, probably both of them. But like you say, mm. your mum, you, you speak more about your dad. Um, someone who's volatile, who 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 maybe ha- I don't know if they put you down or sh- you know shout shouted at you and things like that. So you had nobody to turn to then. Yeah, that's right. And you know because we were materially, financially privileged, I worked from the premise. Well, I can- I must come from a good home. I went to a good school. I got a good education. I had nice clothes. We always had plenty of food on the table. We lived in a big house, and thank God, you know, I could go into my own room and shut the door. Yeah. Couldn't lock it, but I could shut it. Um, so I thought there's nothing wrong with us because I knew there were plenty of people worse off than me. Yeah. It, and there were. Can you give us a time when then we there was a where you ever where you did something or didn't do something and your dad shouted or got you know got aggressive and you wondered why did he do that you know because I didn't do anything wrong was it was it that kind of relationship um it was more my mother who shouted at me yeah um I was terrified of my father's rages and his tongue but I didn't get most of it uh Honestly, most of the time I was just so cowed by it. I didn't think. The whole thing blew up when I met my husband. And that's when it all started to come into question. Yeah. Yeah. And what did there you, was a time... I was going to say to you, sorry. what did you want to... Amongst all that, was there any ambitions of what you wanted to be when you grow up was there anything that you wanted to be growing up no so it was kind of knocked so all ambitions and things were knocked out of you because of Mm. your your upbringing yeah I started really writing after I left my husband and discovered that actually I don't write too badly but it had never struck me that I could achieve anything I I fell into stuff by accident. You know, I had a natural flair for languages. I studied languages at university. I got a good enough degree to do a PhD. I did a PhD because I I found out that I could. But no, I didn't have ambitions and I didn't have a sense of my own intelligence or my own worth or anything. It was just, I was a very damaged person. I was going to say to you as well, because you, you're a damaged person and you, you've lacked confidence, self-confidence, you lacked um, sort of any, any maybe get up and go, whatever. How did you, how, how did you, what, what made you and how did you manage to get to university in a sense? Yes, you, you get the grades and so but in terms of it 
confidence as of you know was it university an opportunity to get away what you know what was that university was a godsend for me um i got my i got good a levels because i knew that that was my possible escape route yeah. and i and the day before i was due to leave to a university in another city my middle brother suggested we all go out to dinner for to a certain restaurant which we did and he could always choose a bad restaurant we all woke up the next day with galloping diarrhea yeah <laughs> genius and this is relevant because while we, i was sort of crawling around the house gathering my things up london university which had not offered me a place suddenly phoned up because they had a space before i was due to drive up to my other university to say that i could start at that university and my father actually thought long and hard about saying no you can't go to birmingham you have to go to london and it was sort of it was in the balance that morning that scared the hell out of me because if i'd gone to london i would not have got away i'd have had to live at home because they held the purse strings it was that close and i don't know why he kind of let it go but i'm hugely grateful because birmingham and being away from home offered me a view into a different world it was it was huge it was a prison door that actually opened a bit yeah so it's almost like a a sigh of a sigh of relief for you so it was so basically yeah. your childhood was that traumatic that you mm. would have done anything to get away and even when there was it's almost this thing where there's another hurdle to there's another hurdle to get over before i leave oh no oh no yes and then you get over that hurdle and you're thinking what a relief um yes so did you at that did you say you met your husband while you went to university or was it did you meet your husband afterwards i was at university and someone uh, a friend who i trusted um set me up on a blind date uh, and i was very blind <laughs> and <laughs> and your you and again again I'm because the reason why I'm kind of um looking at those questions is is for somebody who was where did you find that strength from to be able to first want to go to, you know to be able to go to university obviously the strength is to get out so I understand that mm. but then mm. where did you find the where did your confidence come from to be able to wanting to meet somebody and maybe and do you think that was partly because you wanted to feel loved or Yeah, it wasn't confidence. It was wanting to feel loved. Oh, it was wanting to find as the phrase now goes, my person. Yeah. It was wanting to find somewhere to belong in the world. Yeah. And so what did you study at university? French and Italian. Oh, so you studied the languages, you studied the languages. I was good at them. Yeah. So for the next how many years then of your life, um was there any did anything happen between you and your parents or anything like that or was it just you know you decided to go away and and what's you know what was your life like at university and, and things like that to the point where you to to become the person that you are now 
University was wonderful because the first time in my entire life I realized that people could talk about ideas. Um, people could talk. In my home, it was like Moses sitting down to dinner every night and handing out this sort of command, Ten Commandments the way my father spoke. Mm. There was no discussion. There was no discussion that I was ever included in my opinion didn't count. So actually exploring this, exploring that I had a voice, exploring that, you know, you could talk with people and learn and discover and people could be broad-minded was phenomenal. Yeah. My husband presented himself as more broad, uh, open-minded than my parents, which was kind of not hard. It's kind of like saying that Donald Trump was probably more open-minded than Attila the Hun, but hey, you know, an advance is an advance, I guess. Um, but I married virtually straight out of university. Um, and then I did my PhD, which was wonderful because that kept me out of the world. I mean, I, it was just me and my books, and I learned some really important things. Um, I did my degree on Italian literature and fascism. Because <laughs> I had grown up ring a bell? in a fascist yes. state. Ring a bell, yes. I was about to say, ring a bell. <laughs> yes, and that was really empowering for me. I started to find my foundation. Um, my marriage was not happy. Mm. My, I had a child. Yeah. And then, by chance, in various peregrinations with my husband, we went to Australia and back. Doing my PhD, I found an unknown Italian writer, which is like finding the lost ark if you're a PhD student. Yeah. So I wrote about this Italian writer and blow me, his sister was alive and she contacted me and she gave me his papers, which led to a first academic book about this writer. I wrote this book, I became the world expert on this person, right. which well, it's not very impressive. There are only about God knows how few people in the world know of him, but my book had a run of 250 copies and hit all the places that it needed to hit, which all the libraries, yeah. which nobody normal would ever consult anyway. Yeah. But for me, the point about that was when I saw my name on my book in print, I suddenly found, good God, I must have something to say. I must have a brain. And for the first time, it put me on the map of my own world. Yeah. yeah. That's how desperate it was. Yeah. It's, it's, kind of. So basically, it's like a mm. light bulb moment then for you. It was like a the moment where clarity. It was seen. one. Yeah. It was one. It was, Jesus, I do exist after all. Yeah. I do have a brain. I've got something to say. I've achieved something. You know, it was amazing. My mother, who can't read Italian, insisted on having a copy of it on her shelf so that she could crow to people about it. Yeah. But, um, yeah. So when you wrote the book... So the, sorry, mm. sorry to quit, I, keep, I keep interjecting there because I, I, I'm inter I, this, is, this is a fascinating mm. story. You know, when you wrote the book, mm. 
or did did you before he's writing or when you were writing the book did you let your parents know that he was writing the book or did you just kind of just hand it to them and say here and was you then looking for some sort of acknowledgement from them again no i mean a piece of the story that i left out is that my parents and i had a two decades long estrangement essentially mm. because after they kicked me out uh, they disowned me I realized that they didn't care about me that they really did not care about me as a person that was pretty devastating yeah and I wanted from them some sign that they did care yeah kind of normal and there were a few attempted reconciliations and I always got the feeling that they wanted me back for the head count you know it was for the photo opportunities essentially yeah. and I wouldn't do that I didn't even tell them about the book till years later um the estrangement just dragged on and on and on and I had very little to do with my brothers because they didn't care either right. so it was, yeah so, so your relationship so you, you you at this time you're still you're still married yeah you're still married you've written the book um the, the book um what was it like the first time I've, I've had this quite a few times on on the podcast and i'm always interested yeah. to know what was it like the first time holding this you know were the tears of joy you know what was it what was it like this tangible holding this tangible thing that you've done in your hand uh it was incredible it was like a fuck i actually exist moment <laughs> it was kind of that basically. i was not expecting that <laughs> but it was i can kind of remember there was a children's party going on in my house and i've been sitting with these mothers and we've been talking about really exciting things like washing powders and then i opened this box of books and I held this thing in my hand fuck i exist i an independent person exist yeah. mm. fantastic fantastic mm. and, and i just want to go back a little bit when, when you spoke about your 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 husband and um, i'm presuming being your boyfriend or whatever met, and he met you met your parents you said there was a was there a clash did you say or was it oh like you've never seen yes were you, were you worried it, about was you worried about bringing your husband there and then what, oh did you warn him about him what actually happened oh they had a glorious story together uh the first time they met i was in their house and he came to pick me up and they'd stopped speaking to me for a few days a few weeks um but conventions applied so he came into the house came into the sitting room to meet them and i think we all sat in stony silence for a couple of minutes then i left and he i didn't know this at the time but he really got such a great snapshot of my vulnerability bearing in mind that he was a narcissist too he was looking for a victim know who could have been more perfect and then they had a few confrontations over the next months um 
And I mean, how crazy do you want it to be? We got married civilly. I mean, that is legally yeah. in the British law system without them there. You know, there's a theme again in this family. Yeah. And then I was going to have a religious wedding to make them happy. And at one point, they're being really awkward about making the religious wedding because they wanted to make it for the photo opportunities. But equally, they they were deeply resentful and they wanted to control it deeply. And it ended up one night with my and my husband taking the phone out of my hand and speaking to my father. And they had a heated exchange which reached a high spot when my husband said to my father, Annie is a rose on the shit heap of the rest of your family. <laughs> and there was a long pause. And then my father said, well, thank you for telling me that. <laughs> you know, and yeah. they continued to lock horns like bulls. But they could do that kind of stuff. It was water off their backs. For me, it was incredibly traumatic. Yeah, yeah. So at what point did you, uh, at, what, at any point during this last, the, the, you know, even meeting your husband and, and the back and forth and, and then having a child, uh, at what were there any points in your life that you felt yes you went to university that's you know that's that you found happiness the book was there any other points where you were, were happy memories or fond a fond moment whether it be giving giving birth or having a child you know um my child yeah that was hugely important to me and yeah yeah that was a whole different register of emotion yeah and so because I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna guess as well because, because you've been through so much trauma, um, not feeling love. You, 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 you had your husband. You, you know, you got a husband. You having this. You have a child. There must have been thoughts in your mind where you thought to yourself, "I'm going to, I'm going to love this child like Nova." Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I'm going to bring her up far better than I was brought up. Which wasn't exactly setting the bar high. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so, what's now? You've, you've, you. I can, now I'm starting to get, and I'm sure listeners, when they hear this, will understand why you do the work you do. What's led up to now? The point that you want, you become this person that wants to help people to do with narcissism. Like yeah, well, I was in my poisonous marriage for a lot of years, and my ex-husband was basically my father all over again. Yeah. He was more educated, he was more open-minded, but I did what so many of us do, we marry a toxic parent. And that dragged on for years and years. Was he the father of your child, by the way? Oh, yeah. That was a Yeah, it was. Yeah. yeah. Um, and there were many, many things that got me out of that marriage. Um, 
one of them was my first Shih Tzu. And Sharon was just, Sharon was the most beautiful little dog. She was also an incredibly powerful little ally. She was a guru. She was, she's just incredible. But when she was a little dog, she was in our living room with me and my husband one night. Our daughter was in bed and Sharon was doing what she loved to do. This tiny little ball of fur had attached herself to the end of the belt of my dressing gown and she was shaking it. <laughs> you know, really tough dog. Yeah. And my husband didn't like me paying attention to the dog. He was, he couldn't tolerate that. And he said to me, you've got to choose between me and the dog. You know, cycles in life going back to, you've got to choose between him and me. Yeah. And this voice that I wasn't expecting came out of my mouth and said, well, it's a no brainer, it's got to be the dog. My husband got out Slum got up, slammed the door and walked out because there wasn't much he could do with that. Yeah. And I sat there and looked at this dog and thought, Jesus Christ, I've spent six months researching you to get the perfect dog. You know, yeah. what the hell did I do to end up with him? Yeah. And I got it. <laughs> <laughs> And so when you, when you spoke about being in that, that relationship, that toxic relationship, and you wanted to protect, mm. it must have been a, a, an, an even greater, um, greater force in you that made, that wanted you to protect your daughter and yourself because you are now in a in a yeah. toxic relationship, um, and and you didn't want your daughter. You obviously didn't want your daughter to to see what you've seen from your father with your husband. Yeah, and it was a really hard road, as it is for everyone. I mean, there's a lot of denial. I never felt good enough, so I spent my whole life trying to be a good enough parent. And I naturally assumed that even when he behaved horribly to his daughter, he had to be the better parent or at least a good parent. Um, and when you don't know how to parent because your parents have been god awful you have to parent by numbers you have to sort of sit there and think well my parents would do this and that's definitely wrong okay so how would i react differently in the situation i think i'd do this how do i know i'd do this is this the best thing and it becomes incredibly slow and stressful and demanding to do it that way yes because you don't know, you're making it up as you go along all the time. Um, and it took a long time to realize that he was a nightmare for her too, yeah. and that I had to leave. But I think one piece that I'd like to put in here is that I experienced myself as a very weak, spineless, resourceful, resourceless, pathetic, individual um, and so do my clients they see themselves in that kind of way that's the kind of narrative we have yeah. but actually underneath all of that crap which is learned there is always a strong resourceful person yeah, always yeah. I wish I'd known that at the time yeah well like you say 
sometimes we, we, we go through things and we often think, I wish we did that or wish we'd known that. Mm. And in order to go through those things, quite often we don't get to know that or we don't get to find out what... Do you know what I mean? It's, it's, it's like looking... Mm. We've got... It's almost like we're looking into the future, but looking backwards. Um, Absolutely. So you're... Yeah. You would have... I'm going to... Again, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to guess that with you not feeling unloved and then going through this relationship with your daughter you would have given it you would have told her that you loved her you'd have given her hugs yeah give yeah you'd have done the complete opposite things in comparison to what your mum or your your dad had done so yeah but always walking that fine line because um i was aware that i had to be a parent you know i didn't want to be a best friend and i didn't want to invade her space so it's a very difficult line yeah and i don't say that for me i say it for other people too so so then after that then you you know you finished you you, you've walked out you've gone out the relationship what was your next port of call what what you know did you escape again was was it you escaping or did he leave um, well, as I said at the beginning, I learned when my back, I learned and I did things when my back was again up against the wall. Yeah. And he took me away for a sort of big birthday. And he was, um, because he knew he had to, he'd been a very bad boy. He wasn't a sexual philanderer. He wasn't one of those. He had no trouble being faithful only to me. Um... But he he had behaved astonishingly badly and he took me away for this birthday treat, which it turned out that I paid for. Hilarious. Um, And he was vile. And we were sitting in, actually sitting in one of the great hotels of the world. And he made me as miserable as hell. He wasn't speaking to me. And he'd gone off to sleep on the floor in the, one of the great hotels of the world to prove to me what a vile person I was. And we sat in bre- at breakfast the following morning and all around I hear happy sounds of happy people sitting on a beautiful terrace, being served beautiful food, looking out at a beautiful view. And I'm sitting next to this pig who's sulking and you know, homicidal rage being exuded from every pore. And I had another of those moments where I thought, fuck, if I don't get out now, I will die. This will kill me. And that's when I started divorce proceedings. Well, that's when I said, you've got to go. Yeah. And Mm. so let's take it to the next stage then. You've gone through that stage. You've got your book. And you've you've now, you've, you've got your daughter um what happened what did you do next yeah what, what happens to you in that next part because what i'd like because what i'd like to know is is how how have you become this person to become to get, get a, a practice the work that you do um because i know because mm-hmm. I, I can see the journey so your next step is <laughs> i can see the journey yeah, and so yeah. what's the next stage the next stage is I strapped on a nappy because I was shit scared. Yeah. I mean, honestly, you would not believe how scared I was. So I'd reached the age that I was. I was the oldest I'd ever been. I'd been, I'd given up a, 
a career in teaching. I had a job in teaching, which I gave up when I had my daughter. Um, I had my totally useless book, which was therapy, but brought nothing else. I had been working as an outside caterer for years because lunatic here. Um, try to create a sense of self-worth by making nice food and my food was divine so I didn't have much income coming in I didn't know how I could use my skills I didn't want to go back into teaching because I thought that would be soul-crushing and having just escaped a soul-crushing husband I didn't want to do that I trained as an Alexander technique teacher which is wonderful work but if you need a stable income it doesn't fit um, I was really at a very uh, low low. Yeah. Even for me, it was quite a low low. Yeah. And um, and then there's my daughter, and obviously she had to be my first priority because you know it was tough for her having um, a broken family. Although she was very happy about it, she said. And so it was gradually. Well, it was a really difficult journey and it's the journey that all my clients go on you come out of the relationship or the marriage and you're at rock bottom and you think where the hell do I start to rebuild my life from and one of the reflex actions is responses why no I'll get myself another partner that will do it um, and that was my instant response oh yeah I'll get another partner and then sort I thought you did a really rubbish job of choosing the last one do you think you're safe to go out and choose another partner maybe not so that was out teaching was out um, and then you had to, so and then I thought there's this thing I must sort out my job first bring money in and then sort myself out and that doesn't work. The intelligent way is to start with yourself and work out. Because when you know who you are, it really helps. But finding out who you are is incredibly lucky. To my eternal shame, I was a Daily Mail reader at the time. Like, like a lot of um, people in my situation, I started reading the horoscopes obsessively. Yeah. I even ran up a bill on the phone for ex listening to the extended horoscopes daily. You know, it got to be quite impressive, but yeah. I needed help from somewhere. Um, but what I did, oh, the Daily Mail introduced me to the concept of coaching and I thought, oh, that'd be a good idea. So I started to train as a coach and that started to bring me some awareness of myself and then because I was training as a coach I realized that I needed to learn NLP so I learned NLP which was incredibly empowering and then I learned other modalities along the way and there were lots of other pieces that started to come together oh and then I started journaling because I was reading shed loads of personal development books as you do yeah. and I started journaling because I'd found Julia Cameron along the way and then one day I was lying on my bed bleary-eyed at 6.30 in the morning 
uh, or something like that, doing my morning pages, and I started to write another book. A book just started to roll out of me. That was fun. That was wonderful. And by that time, I was already starting as a coach. And again, this is all random. I bumped into someone. And she said, you've got to choose your niche. You've got to choose your niche. And I was going, bleh, 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 bleh. I don't have a niche. Who am I? What do I do? And again, totally randomly, I came across someone whose name I forget, who said, you've got to make your mess, your message. And I suddenly realized that, you know, yeah, I'd been through domestic abuse. That's what it was. Domestic abuse, narcissistic abuse. I'd come out and I was really pissed off not for myself, but when I realized that it happened to one in four women at one point and one in six men, I was really pissed off that people were getting away with that. And I decided that my message was actually to help these people, my tribe, to find a life after what they'd been through. Because I was beginning to see that there was a life, but I was beginning to understand how you could do it. And your, how was your daughter at this time? You know, was she, was she, was she, was she growing and 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 growing up fine, and and knowing that she'd come away from um, that relationship. Um, I don't think children do, children do grow up fine after that. I think they have a lot to heal. Yeah. And she had to deal with some appalling rejections by her father after we separated. Um, She was very unhappy in the school she was in and she needed parental consent, to both parents' consent to go to a different school. I found her school where I believed she would fit much better and then you know, squared it, more or less squared it with the school, but they said, we just need her father's consent. He refused to give his consent to me. And then she emailed him to ask for consent. And he said, no, I don't think you are it enough. I don't think you should have that opportunity. You can stay where you are. She was a bright girl. Yeah. But, you know, there are a few things like that, which meant she had a lot to deal with too. And he was only saying that to, to get back get back at you. Well, he was saying it both to get back at me, and also I think you have to accept that it's an indication that although he had her photo on his desk and he would tell her how much he loved her, he clearly didn't care about her feelings. Mm. Shades of my father all over again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's what I'm saying. He didn't care about her, but his main focus yeah. was to get back you and mm. it, it wasn't it didn't matter who he hurts in between it's that aim, yeah. it's, the aim is for you because then um you because you've already given the consent it's all you've already yeah. given the consent you've already given the signature mm. and everything like that so his target was you and yeah. it didn't matter who was in between it could have been it could have been the dog it could have been, <laughs> he was going to get back at you um for what you know, for, for starting the divorce and you know, and everything like that. Yeah. So, um, and he back. Yeah. So you're you start you now then you you're you're starting this practice. Mm. There was again. I, I also, I was going to go back to you as well. You said 
a useless book. But I would say to you, because even when I'm, I'm, I'm looking at you and your mannerisms, it wasn't a useless book. Because when you spoke about it, you said it was an amazing feeling. So that book, yeah, had, that book had a time in its place. Yes, or you can look at, oh, it didn't make millions of sales and that sort of stuff. But I always think when you've gone through things, um, when you have, when you're presented with something, like you said something about having a presence earlier, um, and it's not taken, you didn't take the book, you didn't take someone's idea and take the book, you, you did the research, you did all the work, and you uh-huh. you have this tangible thing, and you said it was amazing and it was and it brought you um, great joy. Yeah. That was that was your thing out of all the things that have gone on, all the you know the the tongue lashing, the this yeah. and the running away and all these things. You have something there, which there's no way you could call that useless. It's 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 giving you, uh, uh, you know. A, a change in mannerisms and you're changing your thought process yeah. um, in terms of happiness and giving you do, you... do you know what I mean? You know... Yes. One minute you're talking about I soaps did that. and then one minute you're talking about soaps and the next minute you've got, like you said, you've got this this book in your hand. Um, and I think those things mm. are, are things to be marvelled at and, 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 you know, and no matter, even if it sells one, you know, you've got something that... <laughs> Yeah. Don't know if it did. But do you know what I mean? <laughs> Even if you've got something that's yes. that's there yeah. and after everything you've been through, you could have you've you know you know, you like you said, you've you have been through trauma, all these things, and then to be coming out smiling and having this this book. Yeah. It's 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 a wonderful thing. So yeah. Um I did it for love, by the way. Yeah. I did it for love. I got to know the sister of this writer, and she's one of the loveliest people I've ever met. Yeah. And I did it for her. Yeah. So you're sec- you've got a second book. Did you say you've got a second book now? Or? Um, I did a second book on my unknown writer. Yeah. You know, and um, then I didn't write anything for years because I didn't think I could write. Yeah. Although the book, first book I'd written in Italian, people said it was well written. And it wasn't written in my first language. And then when I was journaling, this third book just started rolling out. Yeah. What was the name of your um, books, by the way? Watch the first ones. Yeah, both of them. I'll tell the listeners what the name of your books are. Uh, well, the first one was, I'm trying to find it on my shelf because I barely remember. It was La Vita e l'Opera di Leo Ferrero. Uh, the second one was like Correspondenza di Leo Ferrero, something like that. And I don't even know if I've got a copy of that anymore. Um, and then came The Woman You Want to Be, when I suddenly started to be able to use my own experience to turn it into something else to help other people. Yeah. yeah. And it wasn't. My story didn't even appear in that. It was the point at which I'd worked through it enough to turn it into something relatable. Yeah, yeah. So basically, your books have been a series of, of in a sense, your growth, which it would be because mm. you've written them at different times, and then this was one where you've, you've, yes, yeah, person that you want to be. 
Um, what was it? What was it like to set up your own practice and have first clients coming in? And and what was that like for you? Um, it was weird because it was on the internet, um, and hugely rewarding. Yeah. Um, I have worked with an extraordinary array of super talented women and men who all thought they were grey little nobodies, grey worthless little nobodies. And nobody is a worthless little nobody, but these are all extraordinary people. And it's been hugely joyful. I mean, this is the most joyful work I could do. As we sit down and we work and we laugh, and that is so healing. So what type, what's, for, for listeners out there, what is the work that you do? Is it your, your, are you a coach? Are you life coach, oh. wellness? What, what is it that you do? And do you have clients that come to you that have gone through similar situations to you or, or dealing? Mm. Yeah. Um, yes, I am a narcissistic abuse recovery coach and I work with women and men who have lost a sense of who they are um, and help them to actually find themselves so they can find their way forward, enjoy their life, build happy relationships and have a good second chance at life. And the fact is that because we have all been abused by formulaic people, we all have surprisingly similar stories. One of my favorite lines is that narcissists are mass produced on planet Zog and then dumped on Earth. Uh, because they, you know, they use the same lines they behave in the same ways. I have clients in throughout the continents of the world and it doesn't matter what the first language these people speak is, they still come out with essentially the same old garbage. You know, that is amazing. That does seem to be like programming, although it's not. Um, yeah. So, so you give them. Yeah. So basically, you give them advice, and, and do, you, do do you put them on a, a series of uh, like a program, or is it is it like a set program, or do they come to you for advice or just for a chat? Well, there are different levels to my services. I do a fair few free breakthrough sessions with people who've got an issue around narcissistic abuse, and if they do that, I will really home in on that. Uh, issue and work with them on that but there I, I have programs that they can work through on their own for different aspects of it but if I work with people I do not give them advice very much I mean anyone I, I will give them advice about practical aspects of their life what they need to do but everybody can sort of give someone advice about narcissistic abuse. Oh, you just need to pull yourself together, get rid of that man from your life, do this, do that, do the other. That doesn't work with someone who is profoundly depressed and struggling with deep 
learned helplessness. Yeah. You know, the only way you can ever help someone is by starting with them where they are. You know, it's that kind of thing. Um, it's the old Irish joke, you know, a guy gets lost in the country. He sees an Irishman digging the soil. He stops, he says to him, how do I get to Dublin from here? And the, the Irishman says, sure to God, I wouldn't start from here. You can only start from where you are. So when I work with people individually, we start work with them with how desperate they feel and help them to move forward in their own way. It's always a question about helping them to find their own resources. Because they always have shed loads when you just get there. Yeah, you dig a little, you dig a little, dig a little bit deeper. Um, so, mm. your, you know, what's the name of your practice? For listeners out there, what's the name of your practice? Do you have um, a yeah. Well, you can find out all about me from recoverfromemotionalabuse.com. That's my site, recoverfromemotionalabuse.com. Yeah. And how have you, how have you felt in the, since that, since you've started this, how have you felt um, yourself? And how, what's your, again, another question is, how is your, is there a relationship now with your parents or, you know, has, what's, what's happened since? Um, well, I'll do my parents first. Uh, the relationship with my parents never really healed. Yeah. We developed some kind of relationship and I had some kind of closure with my father before he died. He became very ill. I went to see him a lot. And at that point in his life, he was willing to actually quite like me so that was a closure that I was incredibly fortunate to get because not everybody does with my mother I developed a superficial relationship where we could talk about the things that she wanted to talk about she would even let me crack jokes and tease her for being excessively anxious sometimes it was very gentle um, but she remained who she was and I learned that she would always kick me when I was down. It was just what she did. It was like a predator is a predator is a predator. And if you put a fox in among the chickens, it will end badly. So I had this guarded relationship with her um, and it, it was not resolution. Uh, it was not closure. The closure I've had to have is my own closure. Yeah. And that's basically the way it is for all of us, I think. Yeah. Are, are your mum still alive now? No, she died a few years back. So you had closure from one and not from the other? No. Yeah. And how do you feel about that? How do you feel not having that closure? Is it, is it, is it, affect, is it affected you or is it just, you, you know, it is what it is? Um, I think in the end, closure is about, closure would have been how much I could give. Yeah. And 
there's been points in my life where I've known, no, this is where I have to stop. This is as far as I can yeah. go. You can't keep giving. Yeah. And yeah. And so closure was, I'm really sorry that I can't do more, but I know I can't do more. And that's it. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I was going to say, you know, you're, you're just, you know, just a bit about the closure with your, your dad. And you mm. said it was some sort of closure or there was a resolution. Mm. Did he ever, did he, did he come to, did he come to a point where you told him how you were feeling, like you've told me in this? In no. You didn't tell him that? I couldn't have told him that. It would have been my fault. So even, even while he was on his dying, yeah. it would have still been your fault, even though the, you're saying there's still a little bit of closure there? The bit of closure was that he appeared to quite like me. That was it. But I was there for him. There was no, no thought that he would be there for me. I went back. He had the head count on his deathbed. That made him happy. Um, but no, no, there was no way we could ever have that dialogue. Yeah. I knew that. Yeah. So yeah. that's why the relationship could only be superficial. So your life then has blossomed. You've, you, you, yes. You've, you've got, a, you've had a child, you've got several books, you're journaling, um, you're, you're able to, you left, obviously you left Birmingham, living in Oxford, a beautiful place. With my lovely partner. With, you, with, you, with a new partner. So things have changed. Things have changed for you. How, how happy are you now? How, you know, how, what's your next part, you know, what's the next part of your life look, looking like? What's your next journey? You know, or is it just, you're just going to do your practice and, and help others? Um, my life now is happier than I ever thought it could be. I have a lovely partner and I've learned that you can be happy every day, happy with the small things. Our, our time together has not always been easy because he's had some major health issues. And yet we have gone through major health issues far more happily then I went through a marriage where I, where we were financially solvent, we were both healthy, we had a nice home, we had a healthy child, we had everything going for us, and yet we're profoundly miserable. So my partner has taught me an awful lot about happiness, and that's huge. Um, I will continue to practice. This is the work that I love. This is what I believe I'm here to do. I have another book that I need to get out there before I'm very much older. Um, I want to improve my Russian. <laughs> <laughs> but it is, you know, I have a life that brings me joy. I have a life I would never have believed possible. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm hugely grateful. And how's your daughter now? My daughter is fine. She's married and she's in Australia. Fantastic. So, in a in a sense, you've you both ended up married. Married. 
you've you mm-hmm. you know you both oh, I'm not bad. Yeah, oh well, well partners but you both ended mm. up with, you know ha- in a sense happy um your life's mm. your life's after everything um so there's always yeah. there's, there's, when we look at it there's always we always say there's it's kind of cliche you know there's a light at the end of the tunnel and all those sort of things mm. um and Again, can you tell the listeners what's your practice called? Where can you be found? And you know, it's been great having you on. Um, thank you. Yes, it's uh, my practice is recoverfromemotionalabuse.com. Recoverfromemotionalabuse.com. That's where all the information can be found. And I would really like to say that I've worked with people who've been through far more than I have and there always is happiness and what strikes me is that people who have been unhappy for a lot of years of their life have an extraordinary capacity for happiness and a hunger for the happiness that they haven't had and believe me they do make up for it when they start to be happy you know when they find their way they really do have a very joyful life so it Nobody should ever give up. Fantastic. And I, I was going to ask you to, um, to to give a couple of lines, but you've done it. Um, I'd like to say thank you. Um, last question before I go. What was the name of that hotel? Oh, do you really <laughs> want to know? Yes. It was the Cipriani in Venice. Wow, wow. And it's... I will never go back. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a fabulous hotel. Oh, yeah. I'd like to say thank you for coming on and um, again you know I'd like to speak to you more about um, another show maybe about more about the work that you do and 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 again I'm going to say to you as well sorry one of the questions I was going to ask you was narcissism what is a narcissist what is an you you've, you've we've talked about it we've talked about your your experience but for listeners out there kind of give a kind of what is a narcissist what is that word where you know what is what is a narcissist well the shortest definition is a narcissist is someone who makes everything about them and who will ride roughshod over your feelings and blame you for everything in their life or in the world that isn't going the way that they would want it to go. There are people who totally lack empathy. It can be baffling because like my ex-husband, they're emotionally smart. They know what people are feeling. They know how to use those feelings against them, but they do not care about your feelings at all. Um, They are ruthless, they are destructive, and they just want to control you and use you as their convenience. That's a very brief, rough answer. And and they lie through their teeth constantly. And what's your day, um, and saying that, what's your day going to be like today? What, you know, what's your plans for today and the rest of the week? Well, I'm taking it very easy today because I have just come from my other job, house haunting, as you can see from the look of me. Um, but apart from that, what was that? House haunting. 
No, I, that's a joke. Yes, oh, that's okay. a joke. Because <laughs> I look a little bit scary having had an eye operation, no, no, but I'm taking very I thought, easy. Sorry, I thought, sorry, I thought when you said house haunted, I'm thinking oh, um, you know, there's people when they go to different houses where the haunted houses and they go looking. For, yes. I thought that's what you. <laughs> no, no, I have been offered a job doing that many times when I take my makeup off, but no. Um, <laughs> But no, I'm taking it easy. I will be speaking to a few lovely clients and just having a nice day with my partner. Fantastic. And I'd like to say thank you for coming to the show. Um, oh, said, thank you. And that... It's great to talk to you. And that was Men Are Nuts. Speak to you soon.